Well, today we go further down the theological rabbit hole of Babel theology. We have arrived at the gift of tongues, and there's maybe not a more divisive topic in the church today. And unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to clear up all the confusion around the gift that was originally given to eliminate confusion. And how ironic is that, that this particular gift would actually cause confusion. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Greg Hall, and I'm glad you're listening in. This is part three in a three-part series that I'm doing on the theology of the Tower of Babel. And this is where I need to probably give a trigger warning. Trigger warnings are statements that are given before content is discussed that alerts the listener, that's you, to the fact that what follows might contain potentially distressing material for some in the audience. And while it might seem a little out of place for such a warning in this podcast, I just want everyone to know that in today's episode, we're going to be mentioning the topic of speaking in tongues. And in our modern church culture, this is one of those topics that may have caused some trauma in your past. And I'm only half joking when I say that. This has really become a highly divisive issue in some settings. And people have very strong feelings about what happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And let me be clear, this can be a trigger for people no matter what your view is on this topic. For me, this topic, every time it comes up, it takes me directly back to my ordination interview. Let me tell you the story. So I was pastoring in a denomination where speaking in tongues isn't necessarily forbidden, but it certainly wasn't encouraged. And I had taken three or four years of classes to learn more about the specifics of that particular denomination that I was in. And the last step before getting ordained was the ordination interview. And my wife, Lisa, was invited too. So it was Lisa and me sitting in front of 10 to 15 district representatives. They're mostly pastors from around the region. And the district superintendent was there, maybe some others. And the purpose is generally to confirm whoever is going through that interview that they're in the right place and in the right setting. But it's also kind of the last step to make sure that those people going through the process, that there's no red flags that pop up that may have been missed at some other time in the rest of the process. So there I was, Lisa by my side, and one of the first questions seemed innocent enough. One of the panelists asked me what part of scripture I had been studying recently for my personal devotions. And, well, I had spent the previous two to three months looking into the topic of speaking in tongues. So... I was just trying to figure out what the scriptures said, trying to find out what I had missed or what I had possibly overlooked. And that's the way I study. It takes a long time. So the question came in and I paused for a second just to think, because I wondered just for a moment if I should even bring the topic up and open up that whole can of worms. Well, instead of sidestepping the issue, which I could have easily done because I had been studying other stuff as well, I was just arrogant enough that I went ahead and I told him. I said, well, actually, I've spent the last few months trying to sort out the whole gift of speaking in tongues. And the next question was, well, have you come to any conclusions based on your study? And I said, yes, I have. And I think I may have found some things in the text that nobody else is talking about. 
Well, that was the truth. I was very excited. But as you can imagine, that wasn't the end of that line of questioning in that interview. This was the type of red flag they were looking for. The interview was supposed to be about an hour in length. That's what I was told ahead of time. And literally for the first 45 minutes, I was pelted with question after question about my views regarding speaking in tongues. (laughs) And when everything was said and done, I guess I answered their questions well enough not to disqualify myself. And they voted me into the club. And when it was all over, I remember thinking, what was that all about? Why such an exaggerated response over a topic that is barely discussed in scripture? So when someone brings this topic up with me, I just need to tell you, that's where I immediately go. I go back to that table surrounded by district pastors trying to choose my words wisely. And then I usually get past that initial response and I get kind of excited (laughs) because the people I normally hang out with They rarely ask me about this topic. (laughs) So when somebody asks me about this topic, I usually respond by saying, how much time do you have? (laughs) And don't get me wrong. It's an important process that we have in churches for protecting doctrine and making sure people are on board with denominational platforms before they're allowed to formally represent any particular church, I think is generally a very good idea. But the problem would be, if we adopted overly protective views of any particular doctrine. So I'll give you an example. I was listening to a podcast just this morning in preparation for this episode, and the pastor definitely presented the idea that he knew the truth about this topic. He knew exactly what speaking in tongues was. He knew exactly what the scriptures said. And anybody else that presented anything different was unfortunately somewhere misled along the way. And he said something like this. He said, those in leadership and those who teach in any classroom setting, that they have to hold the views of that particular church. And he said specifically, all teaching is limited to the doctrinal position of this congregation. Okay, so here's the problem I have with that. There are good evangelical churches around the whole world whose doctrine differs greatly from each other. And so logic would tell us, with that kind of diversity, that not all of them are correct in their understanding. I mean, there's only one way this speaking in tongues thing is correctly understood. If Jesus were with me here today on the podcast, and I was to ask him, hey, Jesus, because... I'm kind of informal with him that way. What's the deal with the gift of speaking in tongues? I mean, he would have something to say, wouldn't he? And whatever he said, that would be the understanding. That would be the correct view on this topic. And the problem is, I'm convinced that his answer wouldn't sound exactly like what's coming out of any churches today. Now, some groups might be closer to the truth than others, but I don't think anyone has gotten this exactly right. And if every church had a really tight stance on every topic of faith, that all teaching is limited to the doctrinal position of any particular congregation, then some, if not all the churches, would be demanding some amount of falsehoods to be upheld. They would be putting a particular doctrine over and above what may otherwise be the truth. So I think it's important to know what you believe and to be able to back that up with reason from Scripture. That's highly important. But at the same time, 
I really think we just need to, as individuals, but also as church denominations, to be willing to explore the scripture for what it is and to ask hard questions, not just ask them, but encourage hard questions of established doctrine. I mean, honestly, what are we afraid of? That our stance won't hold up if we ask hard questions? There is a way to be grounded in truth without being overly dogmatic about any particular doctrine. And to me, it seems like finding that place, grounded and yet willing to ask questions, hard questions about what the text is actually saying, that allows for freedom of movement within our theology. And if a group of believers can find that place, That place of being grounded in scripture, but also having the freedom to move and dance with the topics of faith. I think that's a great place where the Holy Spirit does some good work. At least it's been that way in my life. And it has also for many others that I've spoken with. So no matter what your view is, I'm guessing you too have some history with either speaking in tongues or maybe it's the complete absence of the modern day phenomenon. Well, today we're going to take a thematic look at the topic. And because it won't be a typical speaking in tongues lesson, well, that may be a little unsettling as well. First, I'd just like to kind of give you a lay of the land. Some of you are very familiar with what the lay of the land on speaking in tongues is. But for some, this is not a topic that you've ever really ventured into. So here it is. Most people land into one of three camps regarding the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. The first camp is what most people call a cessationist camp. And it's people within this camp that generally believe that the gift of tongues was one thing when we read about it in scripture, all the different places. And it was God giving people the ability to speak known languages that they had previously not known. They hadn't studied them. There was no reason they could speak this known language, but they were given the ability to speak it. And for various reasons, people in this camp believe that this gift is no longer utilized by God in our time. They believe it has ceased. Now, there's a second camp, and it's kind of the polar opposite of a cessationist. And I'm going to call this the continuationist camp. And it's exactly what it sounds like. People in this camp believe generally that the gift of tongues continues into our current setting. They sometimes refer to themselves as Pentecostals. You can hear the obvious reference to the day of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2 in that title. And this group believes that God still uses the gift of tongues today. And interestingly enough, they also don't believe in just one type of gift like the cessationist. They believe in several versions of this gift, which include not only speaking known languages, just like the cessationists, they generally would look at Acts chapter 2 the same way as a cessationist would, but they also include a version or versions where you are able to speak unknown languages or what they might call heavenly languages. And it's these heavenly languages that can be used in a church gathering if it's accompanied by the gift of interpretation. But these languages can also be used in private prayer when someone is by themselves 
or even in a church meeting if that private prayer is not addressed to the whole gathering. So there's some in this group that would suggest that the private prayer language is available not just to certain believers, but to every believer. And where the gift of known languages, or maybe even in some cases heavenly languages in a church setting, well, that's a spiritual gift that's only given to some. Everyone has access to a personal prayer language. Some other things about the continuationist camp. While most people that hold this view would suggest that this gift is given after the initial saving faith is experienced, a minority would suggest that someone is not truly saved until they have spoken in tongues. And that's not everybody that holds that view, but that is a minority perspective. So we've talked about the cessationists, the people that don't believe speaking in tongues is actually happening for our day. We've talked about the continuationists, a lot more variations within that camp. But the main view of a continuationist is in some form, that gift is still being used today. And then generally, if you read books on this, there's a third group of people that don't fit nicely and neatly into either one of those camps. And it is often called the open but cautious camp. (laughs) And these are people that think that the gift might still be used by God today, but they're not quite sure exactly how or what it would look like. These are either people that never identified with one of the previous categories or They may be people that used to be in one of those other two camps, and they're no longer convinced that that view is true. They have found a middle ground that allows for them to be very noncommittal. So cessationist, continuationist, open but cautious. Well, that was a real quick flyover on the topic. In the previous two episodes, I've really tried to give the background for this New Testament phenomena of tongues. It all goes back to the Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11. That's where God confused man's language because of rebellion. And why did he do that? It's because humanity was trying to create their own sacred space, trying to control what the gods would say, when they would say it, and where they would speak. And it was after the Tower of Babel story, when the one true God did communicate with humanity, we often read about a dual response to his message. There are those in alignment with God's rule and recognize and accept his instruction. And then there are those opposed to God's rule who seem to not understand what God is trying to communicate and the direction he's headed. Dual responses, those in opposition and those who have come to believe and follow his authority. And we've also seen in our study God's use of wind, and not just wind, but also fire, on mountains when he communicates. There's the presence of wind over the waters at creation, and in his breath, giving life on a mountain in Eden. There was also wind and fire that played a role at Mount Sinai, at the burning bush, when Moses received the law and the inauguration of the tabernacle and the Lord's guidance as the people traveled. It was wind and fire that showed up when Elijah faced the prophets of the false gods on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. And interestingly enough, also when he visited Mount Sinai in 1 Kings 19. And we're just going to dive into this Old Testament story because I believe the story of Elijah gives us maybe some new insight as to how we should be reading some of those Old Testament passages as we make our way into the New Testament. 
So right after the showdown on Mount Carmel, and it's important to understand that Mount Carmel is in the north of the land that God promised to Abraham. Elijah comes off of that experience where God answered in dramatic ways. And over the next chapter, he runs the entire length of the sacred land. And he ends up on Mount Sinai, which is at the southern end of the land. These are mountain stories that bookend the land geographically that God promised to Abraham. So let's remind ourselves the conversation Elijah had with God there on Mount Sinai at the other end of the land. So God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, it says a sound of a gentle blowing. And some of you might recognize the NIV's rendition of a still small voice. Well, literally, the text reads, voice, silence, thin. It's describing God's voice of thin silence like a gentle breeze. That's how he communicated to Elijah in the midst of sacred space. And it's this story of God establishing sacred space that started on a mountain in the north of the promised land with a dramatic, unbelievable display of communication from God. And it ends on a mountain in the far south of that same country. But on that mountain, it's not the dramatic display through which God communicates, but rather it's a voice of thin silence that blows by the prophet of God. And we, as readers, are supposed to see those as bookend events. It's not so much about Elijah's ministry. That's how I've often read those stories. It's all about Elijah and what happens to Elijah. I think we should be reading these stories to help our understanding of God's communication. It's in these two stories that we see God marking his territory, identifying sacred space in ways and in locations that he chooses to communicate with the creation. It's not men deciding when and where this happens. It's God's prerogative. God establishes sacred space on mountains, often using altars and temples and fire and wind to announce the presence of his spirit. So it's with that background, that Old Testament template, that we slip into the New Testament discussion of the gift of tongues. And I haven't mentioned it as much, but I'm personally convinced that we cannot have this discussion without also including the rarely mentioned gift of interpretation. I believe the text will show us that these two gifts— Tongues and interpretation are both given by God to communicate the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's just start with a good basic definition of what is speaking in tongues. And for that, I'm going to go to a systematic theology, which is a book uh, that is kind of an introduction to biblical doctrine by Wayne Grudem. He's a theologian that I respect. I think he is self-described as one in the open but cautious camp, so that's 
Good to know going into this as well. But in his Systematic Theology, published in 2004, he defines speaking in tongues this way. He says, we may define this gift as follows. Speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Breaking away from that, he says it's prayer and praise. That part of his definition comes specifically from a couple different passages. In Acts 2.11, it says that those that understood the tongues at Pentecost were hearing speech that described the mighty deeds of God. So that's the praise part of the description that he uses. The description of prayer in his definition and the part where it's not understood by the speaker That comes out of the description given in the 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 passages. So a couple things I like about this definition, it draws from both Acts and 1 Corinthians passages with one definition. So it assumes we're dealing with one phenomenon, one gift described in both places. And that's not always the case when people define what speaking in tongues is. And for Grudem's definition, I think it stays pretty close to the text. It just tries to reflect what the text says and doesn't get into one particular theory or another about what those spoken syllables are. It doesn't try to say they're known languages or heavenly languages. It just leaves that part open for interpretation. So it's a good usable definition. And moving on, in the same topic, he describes a possible definition for the gift of interpretation. And he says this, we may define the gift of interpretation as reporting to the church the general meaning of something spoken in tongues. And while I liked his definition for various reasons of what tongues are, I have some problems with his description of this gift of interpretation. And let's just start by saying I haven't come across anyone that really does a good job of identifying what the gift of interpretation really is. Those who call themselves cessationists, since they believe tongues are languages already known to humanity, the gift of interpretation then, for them, is the ability to understand known languages. So they would say that sometimes God gives people the ability to hear a language that they haven't studied and be able to understand it. In the same way that in the gift of tongues, somebody's given the ability to speak a known language. So from a cessationist standpoint, the way Grudem defines the gift of interpretation as reporting to the church a general meaning of something that is spoken in tongues, Grudem's definition wouldn't make much sense. Because if I'm being given the ability to understand a language, a known language, or if I already have the ability to understand a known language that is being spoken in tongues, I am not given the ability to understand in general terms what is being said. I actually understand specifically what's being said. So the way the general meaning of something makes its way into Grudem's definition of interpretation comes from the continuationist camp. And it's in the continuationist camp that I haven't ever really heard a good definition of what the gift of interpretation is. And it seems like for a group of people that is so focused on this gift— and what I would say multiple versions of this gift, it seems like they would also have a very good definition of what interpretation is. And the best 
that I've heard is what Grudem comes up with. It's somebody that is able to report to the church the general meaning of something spoken in tongues. I just think, coming out of the Old Testament thematic study that we've already done, knowing what happened at the Tower of Babel, that Babel was a place where one language was being used, and it was being used against God's authority. And so his solution, at least in the scene realm, was to take that one language away and to insert other languages in its place for confusion purposes. It seems like... As we dive into the New Testament and we see this new gift of speaking in tongues discussed and displayed, it just seems to me that there would be clarity around what's being said. And if God gave a gift of interpretation, logic just says to me that that's not going to be a general understanding of anything. It just seems like it would be very specific that whoever is given this gift of interpretation would be able to hear exactly what's being said and be able to clarify exactly what God is communicating through the gift of tongues. Now, that's not a commentary on anything that's happening out in the world today, whether you're in one camp or another. That's just coming from a thematic viewpoint. When we see God speaking to people, we don't necessarily get the idea that they have a general understanding of what he said when he's done. Most of the time, in fact, I can't think of any time when God speaks and the message isn't clear to someone. In a dual response, it may be completely misunderstood or not decipherable by unbelievers, but there's generally somebody around that can say specifically, this is what God's communicating. And I would expect the same if we're talking about the gift of interpretation. Story from the Old Testament comes to mind, the handwriting on the wall in Daniel. There's this mysterious hand that shows up and he writes something that is undecipherable to everybody in the party. And somebody remembers that Daniel might be somebody that brings value to the situation. So he comes and it's very clear what the handwriting on the wall is. It's a message of judgment and destruction. It's going to happen very swiftly. And it was pretty important that somebody didn't just have a general idea about what God was saying there, but that he communicated it clearly. So that little discussion about Grudem's definitions for speaking in tongues and interpretation, I think that it's a good place to start, uh, probably better than most places. As long as we're willing to go back to scripture and see exactly how those things are discussed there and have some flexibility in maybe changing some of those ideas. For as much controversy as tongues has generated, there is surprisingly not a lot of actual content about it in the New Testament. So I'd like to take just a moment, and it's going to be rather fast, but those of you that are not familiar with the topic or think that you are familiar with the topic, I'm going to give a general list of scriptures that are normally included in this discussion. And I will preface it by saying this, I don't think this is an exhaustive list. In fact, I've got other passages, one in particular that I'll share at the end of this podcast that hasn't made it on any list that I think needs to be in the discussion at least. So let's start in the Gospels. Well, there's not not much in the Gospels, except for uh, at the end of the book of Mark. And if you turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. It's where the disciples are commissioned. 
And it's in that group of verses where Jesus's words are memorialized. And in verse 15, it says that he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs, and here's here's the verse, verse 17, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. Going on into the verse 18, they will pick up serpents. And if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And so the problem is the ending of Mark has a lot of problems. We find it in some texts. We don't find it in other texts. We find the order all cattywampus in different texts. Some of it's missing, some of it's not. So there's the textual problem with the ending of Mark, and then there's the theological problems with what's being said. Uh, On this topic, most people focus just on the speaking in tongues part because they want that to be true, but then they also uh, easily can skip over some of the other parts, like picking up serpents, drinking poison. So... Not to go into great detail, there's lots of great studies out there on the ending in Mark, but in the Gospels, that's one place where this gift is mentioned. So then we slip into the book of Acts, and as I go through the rest of these, I'm not going to go into great detail, I just want you to be aware what the landscape is when we are talking about this topic. Acts chapter 2 is the obvious one. It's the day of Pentecost, and I think locations are going to be crucial as we talk about where this gift shows up. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost, and it's in Jerusalem, on a mountain, at a temple. We'll get into it in our Acts study in much more detail. Got lots of ideas and thoughts about how we've misread this entire passage, but it's the location that's important. In Jerusalem, in the promised land, on a mountain, at a temple. By the way, those of you that know the story, also wind and fire come into play. So from a thematic standpoint, there is a lot going on in Acts chapter 2 that rarely makes it into the discussion. The next passage in Acts that I'll mention is Acts chapter 8, and it's the reception of the Spirit by those believers in Samaria. And I will mention that tongues is not specifically mentioned in this passage, but it describes a response by people that some have considered to possibly be describing the gift of tongues. So Acts 2, Pentecost in Jerusalem, mostly Jews there for that festival. Acts 8, still within the boundaries of the original promised land that God promised Abraham, but at the time of the New Testament, Samaria was like another country separating the north and the south. So the reception of the Spirit in Acts 8. Then we're back to texts that actually specifically mention tongues. Acts chapter 10, it's Cornelius's family in Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea by the sea is a part of this promised land, but interestingly enough, Cornelius is not a Jew by birth. Cornelius is a Gentile. From Acts 10, we jump way ahead to Acts 19. And there we find some disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus. This is Paul coming across some people 30 years after the ministry of Jesus and his ascension. Paul comes across this group of people that is still following the teachings of John the Baptist. 
They're looking for a Messiah. They're waiting for a Messiah, but they have not yet heard that the Messiah has come. They speak in tongues as well. And from a book of Acts standpoint, those are the passages that most people bring up when they talk about this topic. It's Acts 2 with Jews in Jerusalem. It's Acts 8 with sort of a half-breed, theologically speaking, of people in Samaria, people that believe some of what the Jews believe, but they've brought in a lot of extra other stuff. Acts 10 with Cornelius and his family, Gentiles that have come to faith. And Acts chapter 19, these believers that have not yet heard that Jesus actually did his ministry. That's it. That's the book of Acts. Now, I've got another passage that I'll mention at the very end that I think needs to be considered. But for now, let's skip out of Acts and into the book of 1 Corinthians because it's in chapters 12 through 14 where we find some more commentary on speaking in tongues. This is a letter written by Paul to the church in Corinth, and they were having some problems. And so this is a corrective letter. And in chapter 12, we read about uh, a lot. In chapter 13, I think we're still on topic, but most people read that off topic because it's the love chapter. That's the one that you hear most often in weddings. And then we slip into 14, and 14 gets really busy with tongues instruction. So... That's it. Those three places are all the straightforward places that mention speaking in tongues. Mark 16, those spots in Acts, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And you might say, that's not a lot of instruction for such a controversial topic. And I would definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot to be said about what is not being said about these gifts. And with that said, I also think we've done a poor job of parsing out what few passages we have been given. So regarding getting into the details of those specific passages, I'm going to be starting that in just a few episodes as we dive into the book of Acts. And as we march through the book of Acts, I will head into that passage in Mark a little bit. I'll definitely head into 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and we will parse those out and be specific about it. So today, as we round this podcast episode out, I hope to just give you a little something about Acts chapter 2, and then bring in a different passage that I haven't mentioned yet that I think needs to be on the table, and I'll give you a reason why. So let's make our way over to Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. If you haven't read it in detail, it's worthy of your careful and close reading, just from a perspective of what does the text say? Because there's questions about who is at this event. There are questions about where this event is. There are questions about who speaks in tongues. There are questions about what other languages might have been spoken that day, if any others. There's all kinds of questions that you think for the one passage that everybody goes to that there'd be some more clarity, but there's really not. But what we do have, and I mentioned this before, what this passage does bring to the table is its setting. It's in Jerusalem. And we know that on Pentecost, a Jewish feast day of ingathering, there's really one place that the disciples would be on Pentecost. And it would be in a house, but it wouldn't be a house in an upper room. It would be in the house. God's house. That's how it was referred to in the Old Testament. So I believe the setting is the temple, which is built, you got it, on a mountain. 
And in verse two, it simply says this, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house, in my reading, the whole temple where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. The next thing that I want to focus on is this, the description of who was there listening and who was able to understand what was being said. It says in verse 5, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. There's this group of devout Jews. Devout means they're not just religious, but that they're actually, they actually get it. They actually are people of faith. Now, their understanding might not be exactly right, but these are devout men from every nation under heaven that have gathered together at the temple on this Jewish ingathering feast. And when the sound occurred, the crowd of devout men came together and they were bewildered because each one of these devout men was hearing the people who were speaking in tongues. They were hearing them speak in his own language. And it's this group of devout men that are amazed and astonished saying, aren't all these people from Galilee? (laughs) How is it that we each hear them in our own language, the one to which we were born? And then it gives a list of all these different places in verses 9 and 10 where these people are from. And it says, They all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? It's because in verse 11, it says, This group of devout men, they all heard them in their own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. It was very clear to them what was being communicated through this gift of tongues. They could hear it specifically not generally. And they were describing the mighty deeds of God. And that's usually where studies end on Acts chapter 2. But unfortunately, that's not the end of the passage, because the end of the passage doesn't show one response that everybody gives. That's right. There is a dual response in Acts chapter 2. And just about every commentary doesn't continue and give a good idea of what's happening in verse 13. Because in verse 13, it says, But others were mocking and saying they are full of sweet wine. Implying what? Implying that these men who are speaking in tongues are drunk. They've had too much wine. We know that because Peter took his stand with the eleven right after that comment, raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose. Who is Peter talking to? He's talking to those in the crowd, not the ones that understood. He's talking only to those in the crowd who assumed that they are drunk. Because it says, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And I love that comment just because it seems like he's saying, you know, if you come back at three in the afternoon, it might be different. (laughs) And it's this dual response that reminds me of a passage back in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's the story of Hannah. She was one of the wives of Elkanah, and she was having difficulty having children. And it's Elkanah that would go up from his city every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was before the temple was built. So he's going to a mountain and sacred space to worship every year. And Elkanah brought his wife Hannah, and she ended up going to the temple and praying 
and she said a prayer that was basically, if you give me a child, God, I will dedicate that child to you. And in that story, it says, now it came about in verse 12, it says, now it came about as she, Hannah, continued praying before the Lord that Eli, who is the priest, was watching her mouth. And as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli's response was that she was drunk. That was his conclusion. He didn't understand what was going on in this setting. And his conclusion was that she was full of sweet wine. And that's the response that we have back in Acts chapter 2. It's a very similar response. The settings are different, but the location of sacred space and the accusation of someone being drunk is, I think, a part of a dual response of somebody not understanding exactly how God is communicating what is going on on a spiritual level, and their inability to understand what that is causes confusion. And the only explanation that makes sense to them is that these people are drunk. Now, for the setting of Acts chapter 2, both the cessationist and the continuationist, they both believe that these are known languages being spoken. And so the reason they ignore verse 13 in their commentary and in their discussion is because verse 13, the response that we read there doesn't make sense if everybody up front is speaking a known language already known to man. We've got a great diversity in the crowd of people from a lot of different places, and some of them hear them in their native tongue, but others in the crowd, their conclusion is that they're drunk. Now, if I'm downtown in the city in which I live, and I hear a conversation going on between two other people that are speaking a language that I don't understand, I can look at those people, I can listen to their conversation, and my conclusion is not those people are drunk. That just isn't the conclusion I would come to in normal circumstances. For me to come to the conclusion that somebody's drunk, their behavior has to fit within certain parameters. Usually my conclusion would be, oh, look, there are two people having a conversation in a language I don't understand. And if there were really 13 different languages known to man being spoken that day, that would have been happening all over the place. People would have been saying, I understand this language because it's my native tongue, but all those other 12 languages I hear being spoken, those people aren't drunk. Those people are just speaking a different language. That would be the conclusion that you would come to. Again, I'm not promoting one camp over the other. I'm just saying verse 13 in Acts chapter 2 is not being addressed in this conversation. And those that try to address it don't do it adequate justice. There's more there. There's a dual response, which fits into an overall theme of people when God communicates. You would expect a dual response, unless everybody there is a believer, but that's not the case here in Jerusalem. We know from the gospel accounts that there are dramatically different people from a theological standpoint in Jerusalem, and many of the leadership don't believe in God. You would expect a dual response. You would expect believers to be there. You would also expect the unbelieving response of, that doesn't make any sense. I'm still confused because I'm still under the curse of Babel. close out the episode today. I'd like to just mention one episode in the book of Acts that is not a part 
of this speaking in tongues discussion that I think at least needs to be on the table. And the reason is because it's piecemealed together from three different places in the book of Acts, but it's all talking about the same event. And the event actually is recorded first in Acts chapter 9. It's a road narrative. It's Paul on the road to Damascus. And the interesting thing that most people don't understand is this same story is retold two other times, giving more information and different details every time. So there's the event that happens that Luke records in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 9. And then it is discussed again in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 11. And then again in Acts 26, verses 12 through 20. In chapter 9, we know this about Saul's encounter with God on the road to Damascus. We know this. Number one, there's a light from heaven that flashed around Saul. Number two, Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice, a phone in the Greek, speaking to him. Saul understands the voice and he interacts with it. He's able to communicate back and forth. Number three, the men who are with Saul stood speechless. That's how they're described. It says that the men heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. Those are the things that we know coming out of Acts 9, 3 through 9. Then when that story is retold out of Paul's words in Acts 22, verses 6 through 11, we know this. Number one, it's about noontime, and a bright light flashed from heaven around Saul. That's how it's described. Number two, Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice, a phone, speaking to him. He understands the voice, and he interacts with it. That's not new. Number three, this is new. The men with Saul that day saw the light, did not understand or hear with comprehension the voice of the one who was speaking. We know that from Acts 22, 6 through 11. The third time the book of Acts discusses the events on the road to Damascus is in Acts 26, 12 through 20. We know this from that account. Number one, at midday, Saul saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining all around him and those with him. Number two, Saul and those with him fell to the ground. Number three, Saul heard a voice, a phone, speaking to him in the Hebrew dialect, dialectos. Dialectos is a Greek word that also comes into play in Acts chapter two. So if we put all three of those accounts together, we know that Saul saw a light and heard a voice from heaven heard it talking to him in the Hebrew dialect, a language that Saul used frequently. We also know that those with Saul saw the same light, heard the same voice, and we can assume that those traveling with Saul that day would have understood the Hebrew dialect as well. But those with him that day not only weren't blinded by the light, but they also didn't understand what they had just heard. They heard the same thing Saul heard, didn't understand anything. Saul heard God distinctly, not generally, specifically, and interacted with him. In the broad discussion of the gift of speaking in tongues and the gift of interpretation, where we would expect a dual response, I think the story of Saul on the road to Damascus has to be a part of the conversation. I think it fits thematically into the discussion we've been having, and I think it brings more information to the table that would help us better understand what this gift really is. 
I think that's all I should have for today. <laughs> and it's not all I have. So I'm really excited about heading into a Book of Acts study in a few episodes. Uh, before we get to that, I want to just recap the fourth Rethinking Scripture project, which is Rethinking Conversion. So we've done Rethinking Babel in three episodes. We're going to head into Rethinking Conversion next, and I'll just give you a brief outline what my thoughts are there. Well, if nothing else, I hope today was at least enjoyable to hear me get a little excited about scripture. (laughs) Sorry, I didn't ask you ahead of time how much time you had, but you could see how long this episode was, and you could see it was a little longer than normal. So that's me when you bring up the topic of speaking in tongues. Be forewarned. I've got a lot going on in this little head of mine, so... We'll see you next time. And just remember, if you enjoy what you're listening to, others might enjoy it as well. And one of the ways we communicate that is by taking time to rate, review, and don't forget to recommend to your friends the Rethinking Scripture podcast.